Can everyone? Is that working? Great. Um, I'm just, I'm not a professional speaker at all, um, but I have grown a business from two people to about 300 people. And so today I'm going to sort of go through some of the things I've learned. Um, bit of scattergun approach, none of them, it doesn't really flow away from po point to point. And I've got way too much content. So if we only get halfway through, I apologize. And I'll have to come back next year and finish it off. Um, so what does Atlassian do? Um, we make software development tools. Um, broadly, we help software developers collaborate with each other. We sell an issue tracking system called Jira, a wiki called Confluence. We make continuous integration. We make code review. Um, we recently acquired a uh, source code hosting business called Bitbucket. Um, and uh, for eight years, uh, we were bootstrapped. Um, we started with uh, two co-founders, and uh, we've grown that to, uh, to 300, uh, 300 staff in six countries. We sell about $60 million worth of software last year. Um, and about three months ago, we took on uh, an equity investor, a venture capitalist called Excel Partners. Um, so I was going to go through 10 things that I've learned uh, running a software company. Um, the first thing is, uh, I, I think you should start with two founders. Um, my, my, I couldn't imagine running Atlassian without my co-founder, Mike. And uh, all the successful companies are doing it. Um, Apple, <laughs> Microsoft, <laughs> Google, Hewlett-Packard uh, a long time ago. Uh, Fog Creek uh, have two co-founders down here. Uh, Redgate Software, um, Campaign Monitor, if anyone uses them for their email. Um, a lot of my sort of favorite companies uh, have two co-founders. The reason for that is that uh, running a company is like a roller coaster ride. Um, you've got incredible highs and incredible lows, and they're often separated by, uh, sometimes in the case of uh, a few days. Um, for me, I got married uh, early this year, and uh, in my honeymoon, we went to Botswana. Uh, that's my wife uh, up there. And, uh, and uh, in the middle of this honeymoon, uh, it was fantastic. Botswana's great if you ever get a chance to go. Um, in the middle of the honeymoon, we were staying in the, in the Kalahari Desert in a hut. Um, miles from anywhere, and I got a message from my co-founder written on a scroll bit of paper that said, uh, Scott, call me urgently. <laughs> now, when you get that message uh, in your honeymoon, you know it's serious. Uh, when that message has come um, via a phone call uh, to the country uh, office, to the local office, that then went via CB radio uh, to someone who got in a truck and drove an hour to our hut, um, <laughs> you know that there's some problems. Um, so in the, in the next 24 hours, um, <laughs> I found out that uh, a hacker had uh, hacked into Alassian's uh, uh, our software. And uh, it's actually, in, in, we found out later they'd spent three months. Uh, they downloaded a software three months ago, built out a whole bunch of attack vectors, and then had uh, broken into our, our, some of our surf, uh, servers and some of the open source uh, servers as well. Um, so I'm on a flight coming back from, uh, from Johannesburg, and I'm just thinking, wow, like my company that I built up over eight years is just going to go down the toilet because um, of this hacker in uh, an Eastern European state. Um, so that was incredibly low. We got back. It looked like uh, people had been through a war zone. People hadn't slept in 72 hours. The whole company came together. People actually just stayed in a hotel room next door. Um, people were having, you know, ordering pizza at two in the morning. And uh, eventually we all got through it. And it was great to know that I had a co-founder there and, and he knew that I could, I could come back and help out. Um, and when I came back, he, he pretty much went and slept for 12 hours because he hadn't slept for 72 before that. So the next week, um, actually, I flew back. We did that over the weekend, got it all fixed up. Um, on the Monday, I flew to San Francisco um, to start our capital raising with our VCs. 
We'd planned this uh, months before, and we'd lined up five top-tier venture capitalists, and we were going to see them all in a, in a three-day period, and I thought this could not possibly happen at a worse time. Um, it turns out the venture capitalists see people getting hacked all the time, and it's way more common than you ever think, and, uh, and they recommended security experts and things we should have done, and uh, it turns out that uh, the, in a month's time uh, after that, we announced our capital raising. We raised $60 million dollars. Uh, in uh, venture funding from Excel Partners. Um, so this is an incredible high, and uh, having a co-founder means that you get to share uh, the highs and the lows. Um, another point people ask me, uh, I advise a lot of startups, and people would ask, well, how much should we do each? And it's half each, basically, that's the rule. Um, I don't care you know, if you're more experienced or if you're, uh, you know, you're gonna work harder at the business. Like, it's basically half of nothing when you start off. Um, don't be stingy about it, and uh, really, you're going to build this together, so um, go 50-50. Um, second thing is you need a business model. Um, now, what does that mean? Um, it means who's going to buy your software. Um, for us, is that the CTO? Is it the end user that's going to buy the software? Um, how are they going to find out about it? Um, are they going to find it online? Are going to have cold calling? How, how are they going to do the sales process? How much are we going to charge? Um, in software, there's a there's a pretty much a golf. You can sort of sell things under $10,000 online. Um, but once you need salespeople involved, you need to start, the, the, soft, the pricing needs to go up, um, you know, $30,000, $50,000 because it becomes much more expensive to sell them. So I see a lot of uh, people who sort of don't really understand what their business model, and I think that's a key thing to work out. When we started Atlassian in 2002, um, there was pretty much just the enterprise model um, was all that existed. Um, and the enterprise model, we all know it. There's uh, expensive salespeople. Uh, the list price, uh, no one ever pays, is a 20% discount um, right off the bat. And you're not really sure if you're getting screwed or not. Um, people don't mind paying for software as long as they're paying the same as everyone else. Uh, but enterprise software, you weren't sure what you're doing. Um, so we came along, and, and our model was uh, that we charged sort of under $10,000. Um, you could download it and use it. We, we didn't have any professional services. Um, and so it's qu it quite different. And uh, these days, uh, it's often known as a, a different name. Uh, freemium seems to be sort of more and more common. There are a lot more businesses are uh, following that way. Um, just to note that uh, SaaS isn't a business model. SaaS is a delivery model. So Salesforce.com is actually more like an enterprise software company, right? They actually have salespeople. The, pr the list price gets discounted heavily when you're uh, an enterprise. Um, they, uh, they have quotas that they try and meet. So that's, even though it's a SaaS company, it's still in the enterprise sales, whereas everyone here uh, earlier said they know Dropbox. Low touch, you've probably never had to email Dropbox for support or call them or anything like that. You just hand over your credit card. So SaaS is not a business model. So how did our model evolve? Uh, people think that we were relatively smart, came with this really fancy new business model. Um, but what happened is that we were in Australia, miles from anyone, um, and we were 22. Um, so there's a whole bunch of constraints on us that we, we couldn't get around. Um, firstly, we couldn't have a sales team. We couldn't afford one. Um, we were 22-year-olds. We couldn't raise any money. Um, so the software has got to sell itself. Um, if it's going to sell itself, um, it needs to be low price because if it's going to, you can't sell someone $50,000 of the software online, um, so it needs to sell itself. If it's going to sell itself and it's going to be uh, very cheap, you need to sell an absolute ton of this stuff before you're going to make any money. And if you're going to sell a ton of stuff, you need to sell it globally. If you're going to sell it globally, you need your pricing on the website, you need people to be able to download it and install it and so forth. So our model really came about because we, were, uh, we lived in, uh, in Sydney. And um, the thing I want to sort of teach all the uh, startups that come talk to me is that they say, well, 
I spoke to a startup the other day, who everything going for it, smart founders, a great product, and they told me that they've got this fantastic freemium model that's going to have word of mouth, and they're going to generate sales of people who talk to each other, and it's all online, and they have a huge OEM opportunity that they're going to pursue at the same time. And it's just not going to work. It's not going to work. I tell you, we've, uh, we tried OEM sales. Uh, we had an expensive $300,000 ex Veritas uh, uh, sales guy who was the best in the business to do OEM sales for us, and it completely failed. Um, because OEM guys want two-year release cycles. They want it to be supported for a long period of time. Um, it's completely the antithesis of a, uh, of a word of mouth business model. Um, use your own product. I'm going to skip through this one quickly. Um, you're your own best customer. Um, these days, you don't have time. Every, as, uh, as we said this morning, there's a thousand other startups out there. You don't have time to go to customers, talk to them, get feedback, build something that you don't really use yourself. Um, and we passionately use our own products. Um, and we use them publicly. Uh, so you can actually go to jira.lassie.com and see our bug tracking system, see every single issue that's got raised in our bug tracking system uh, in, in its entire time. We use Confluence for our release notes, so we use our stuff publicly. Um, what's interesting though, one of our competitors actually took our top 10 most voted for issues and wrote their own page um, talking about how their uh, software solved our problems. Um, so that was interesting, sort of a downside. Um, Damesh, um, uh, are you here in the audience? Um, so Damesh, uh, his uh, company runs a free website tool called Website Grader. Um, I just ran uh, HubSpot, Damesh's company, through his own tool. Um, now, sure, you could have put an if statement that just said, if HubSpot.com, make it 100. Where's the last point, Damesh? Come on. <laughs> First point, fourth point is uh, measure everything. So at Atlassian, we measure absolutely everything. It seems to have been a theme this morning of uh, some of the talks, but we measure where people come from for our sales cycle, how they use our product. We have sales by country. Um, we, we measured absolutely everything back before data measure, um, analysis was, was cool. Um, and uh, my advice for startups is, uh, even if you don't have the capability to, to uh, analyze everything today, make sure you capture it. Um, to make sure you've got your website logs turned on. If you can log usernames and so forth into your website logs today, even if you don't have the uh, capability to analyze it now, when you finally do, you will have all that information stored there. And we use Confluence, our, our own product, to, uh, to put all that stuff online, and we share it with all our employees. Uh, Diamesh talks about he uses Confluence for sharing all the information internally, and there's no point having this data available if all your employees don't get the opportunity. And we've had uh, the most random of people. We have intern students who would spend a weekend crunching data and come up with some sort of new insight uh, across Atlassian's data. Um, the corollary to that is uh, you have to test everything. Um, we, uh, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, we decided that uh, we wanted to give away um, small uh, licenses of our product for free. Um, so we sold very well in the sort of 20 plus users uh, bracket, and we didn't really sell well in the sort of small market. So we thought, well, let's give them away for free, and that'll be a nice lead-in for our, for our product. Um, but our head of support said he had no idea how much support these things would, would, would uh, create. Would, you know, would each person take up hours of support a week? How many are we going to sell? Um, so what we did is he said, okay, well, how do we, how do we test this out before we cr you know, collapse our support department? So we ran a promotion for five days. Um, for $5, you could get a five-user license. Um, so over the course of the week, we could then, okay, we had a short amount of time to sell these things. We could work out how popular they were. And then we'd have a few months to work out how much support these things generated. Um, and we were aiming to sell 5,000 of them in the week. Uh, and raise some money for charity, because uh, the money went to charity. 
Um, and it turns out we had a whole bunch of betting pools at Atlassian and everyone was, uh, was ridiculously wrong. Um, the blue line is uh, what we actually did um, and the red line was our estimate. So um, there were, we ended up raising about $100,000 for charity. Uh, and uh, if we hadn't tested that, we wouldn't have been able to put the support, uh, uh, support in place for when we did eventually launch that uh, later in the year. We launched for 10 user licenses for $10. Um, this can be applied even to big decisions. Um, in 2006, we, uh, we only had one office around the world. We had an office in Sydney, Australia. And uh, we decided, we had a thesis that we, if we, by being in the States, we could be close to our customers, we'd get better customer feedback, they'd be happier, they'd buy more stuff from us. And it turns out that thesis is correct. Um, but we moved, to, we moved to New York. Um, New York is not a great uh, place to start a tech uh, company. Um, apologies to anyone who's in New York, but it's a very mercenary um, place. Everyone's there sort of for a short time and earn a lot of money, not really to buy into uh, a startup. Um, so after about uh, six months there, we, uh, we moved the entire office um, over to the West Coast. Um, so we still tried trial and error, even with uh, large things like opening an office. Has anyone seen Glengarry, Glen Ross? A, B, M. Always be marketing. So we uh, at Alassian, we're marketing all the time. As a startup company, you have to, uh, you, you always get an opportunity to sell something. Um, this is our uh, 404 page, uh, or our 500 page on our website. Um, the best one I've seen recently is uh, Groupon has an unsubscribe page. Uh, when you unsubscribe from Groupon's uh, email list, it has the founder of Groupon getting hit by a bear and says, if you unsubscribe, this person will get hit by a bear, and it's kind of a bit viral. Um, I don't think it's un not unsubscribed, but uh, they tell their friends about it. Um, so things that we've done, um, we always try and sponsor the beer at conferences. Um, and if anyone was here last year, we sponsored a night uh, in conjunction with Balsamic, um, uh, sponsored a night of beer. And uh, we've also, uh, Java One, until recently, was the largest conference, uh, one of the largest tech conferences. And uh, to sponsor a booth there is $25,000 to $50,000. You've got a staff for a whole bunch of time. People may not come past. Um, so what we did is there's a session called Java Posse um, that's always held in the afternoon, and it gets a couple of thousand people there. And uh, you're not officially supposed to do this, um, but we basically truck in about 15 or 20 cases of beer um, and uh, slap labels on them, Alassian labels, and sponsor the beer. And as a result, the people speaking give us a great shout out. Um, we get mentioned in their podcast. And so uh, for, it costs us about $3,000 to provide the beer at a conference compared to uh, sponsoring the booth. Um, we also found that shipping something tangible works really well. Um, people these days, although you get an email every 10, 20 seconds, um, people still love getting something in the mail. Um, I, I haven't got anything in the mail myself in the last month. Um, but we decided to ship T-shirts to our, to our customers um, because that way they, they tell their friends about us, they get something in the mail after they purchase as opposed to something intangible. Um, we only gave the uh, T-shirts the to the most expensive version of our, uh, of our product. So you had to pay an extra $3,000 for a T-shirt. Um, <laughs> and it turns out that quite a few people actually later on they said, yeah, I, I wasn't sure which version to go, f go with, but I found out that I get a t-shirt with a $3,000 version. Uh, and so I, 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 I splurged for it. And so uh, we've shipped about 10,000 t-shirts around the world. And, and just a point, if you're going to make t-shirts, make them cool somehow, please. There's too many crappy tech t-shirts out there. So uh, get a designer, uh, try and think of something witty, and, uh, and make cool t-shirts. Um, we try and make everything into a campaign. 
Um, recently, uh, sort of about a year ago in the tech downturn, um, we decided that it would be a really good time to, to start hiring. Um, and so instead of putting ads in the newspaper and saying, okay, well, we're going to hire a few people, um, we turned it into a marketing campaign and said, well, we're going to hire 32 people in the next six months. Um, and because it was a marketing campaign, we started thinking, well, how do we, how do we generate some buzz about this? Uh, we said, okay, well, we're going to up our internal referrals to $10,000. So if any staff member who refers someone gets $10,000. Um, if any of you want to refer someone to Alassian, I'll hand out, gladly hand over $2,000. Uh, to any of you to refer people. Um, if you move to Australia to work for us, we, uh, we send you on a harbour bridge climb, you get picked up from the airport in a limousine um, and a nice lunch with your partner. Um, if you are in Australia, we actually send you for a, a week's holiday uh, before you start. So all this stuff sort of generated, generated buzz. Um, but the thing we did probably most controversially was uh, we turned our recruitment program into a bounty hunter program. And uh, so we've never really worked with recruiters. We don't really think they do a very good job. Um, but what we said is, okay, well, anyone can submit resumes to us. Recruiters can send it through, and we'll, here's, our, here's our rates. But you can only send through four people. And if we take any of those four people, we'll continue doing business with you. But if we don't like any of those first four people that you send through, then sorry, we're going to have to part ways. This caused a huge furor in the recruiting industry. There were people from one side saying, that's not how the way we do business, that's terrible. And then we had developers who came in and said, I've never worked with a recruiter that's actually good. I think these guys are doing a great job. So we had like, great press um, for the whole thing. Uh, we've had a couple of people come through recruiters now, and it meant that recruiters sent us their best four candidates because uh, they, they wanted a chance to keep working with us. And this gave us a huge amount of press. Um, and we hired the 32 people in uh, way worse time than we thought. Um, and this year, we might have a 64 campaign. No, 64 more staff. Um, don't forget to market to your employees. Um, that's what you get on your desk at your first day of work at Atlassian. You get T-shirt, chocolates. Um, we actually give you a pen and paper, and you, your computer's already set up with an Aeron chair and a big desk. Um, you get two monitors these days. That's a few years old. Um, and uh, we thought it made an impact, uh, you know, generally. Um, but then one day we got this unsolicited email um, uh, sent to us, uh, that someone I've never heard from before and never heard from again, who was so impressed by his housemate's first day at work that he felt compelled to write us an email. Um, so I, I was pr pretty impressed, and, and it's good to see that the little things you do to employees uh, make a difference. Um, your first idea as a business will fail. Um, does anyone here use a company called Odeo? They're an RSS subscription search service that I've never used. So uh, Evan Williams uh, went on to uh, found Blogger um, as a sort of side project when he was writing uh, Odeo. Has anyone heard of a social network based on genealogy called, uh, called Genie? Does anyone use it? So uh, out of Genie, the guys uh, founded Yammer, uh, which you may be familiar with. And so, as I say, your first idea in a business failing is not necessarily a bad thing. And um, our first idea as a business was terrible. Um, we thought that uh, providing third-party support services to an application server made out of Sweden uh, for two guys, where most of the customers were in the US and we were in Australia, um, <laughs> where we had no mechanism to contact their customers proactively, 
we couldn't get access to the source code um, and we thought we could fix people's issues. It was a terrible business and uh, we kept getting phone calls at four in the morning and my, uh, my girlfriend at the time was very unhappy uh, with this business. Um, but as a side business for us, we had an issue tracking system um, that uh, we used to collect uh, customer information in and we thought, well, you know, if Joel can do it, um, you know, uh, then, uh, <laughs> then we could build a business around uh, issue tracking systems. So, um, over time, our website morphed and our company morphed and uh, we moved from a support company to a one product company um, and now we're a software uh, portfolio company. So don't be afraid to let your first idea, idea fail. Um, we've always had longer term thinking at Atlassian. I've, I've always wanted to build, a, I, I personally want to build a company that's around 50 years and uh, it seems like the, the tech community goes in waves of building long lasting companies. Um, and, uh, and then goes in, at the moment we seem to be in a wave where people are building a lot of stuff to flip um, in very short-term thinking, but um, I've always wanted to build something that's going to sort of survive beyond me, uh, Hewitt Packard, uh, so, to, uh, so to speak. Um, and don't think this is for just for big companies, like this sort of long-term thinking. Um, I was reading uh, that Y Combinator, um, who uh, everyone knows sort of a startup incubator, um, they spend 10% of their time thinking about what the company look like over the long term and what does it look like when it becomes a, a billion dollar company and how will that affect things. Um, so even sort of some of the most successful startups are thinking, are thinking long term. So we, we started with a mission that was pretty much nothing more than we just kind of want to be the best that there is. Um, and uh, within uh, our first year as a software company, probably our first few months, uh, we wrote this down, sort of to define what we wanted as a software company. We wanted to, you know, be different, it's kind of cool. Um, we want to listen to people, we want to uh, value uh, innovation in development and simplicity, um, back when everything was very, very complicated. And we want to, you know, we continued to uh, uh, maintain our support legacy from when we were a support company, we want to provide legendary support. About, about a, two years ago, we then refined this down um, to create useful products that people lust after. Um, this is the the Italian and the German car analogy. So last after is the Italian car. Um, you've got your Lamborghini and your Ferrari, fantastically lustful cars, very impractical, they break down all the time, very expensive. Uh, and the useful is your German car. Um, you know, never breaks down, but not particularly sexy. And we thought if we could meld those two, um, that that's the sort of company that we wanted. And we uh, early on set a, a goal for the company. Um, we set a goal that we wanted to have 50,000 customers around the world. Um, and this is when we had 500 customers at the time. So, you know, we're thinking, thinking big and uh, we found that that sort of challenged people's thinking. So when we 500 customers, people weren't thinking, how do I get the next, you know, the next five customers? How do I find the next 10 customers? They think, wow, if I'm going to be 50,000 customers, I've got to think big, I've got to have bigger marketing campaigns, I've got to scale my support systems because I can't you know, do one-on-one -on -one support like Dimesh was talking about on the sales side this morning. You can't add more salespeople. If you have a big goal, it sets everyone's thinking uh, towards how they're going to achieve that, how they're going to uh, sculpt the business in that way. Something I really struggle with and probably struggle to this day if you talk to any of my employees um, is knowing when to switch gears. Um, so when you're a startup, you need to be absolutely scrappy. Um, our first conference, the first Java one we went to, um, we stayed at a hotel called the Mossa in, uh, in San Francisco. Um, I remember it clearly, it was $48 uh, for a room for a night. 
um, that didn't have a bathroom. You had to go down the hall to share the bathroom. Um, and we fit three of us in that room. Um, me, my business partner, and a random friend that wanted to go to San Francisco. So, um, <laughs> very cheap at the time. Um, and uh, we, you know, we, we started off, we shared office space, we, you know, it cost us $100 a month for a desk, and eventually we grew and became successful, and, uh, and I, was still str I was struggling because I was still in that startup mentality. I was still, you know, anything that was more than a certain price, I had to sort of, I would, you know, argue, why do we need more bandwidth? Like, why are we paying for, you know, faster internet? And, you know, why is this food bill so large? And eventually, I just had to let go of the reins. Uh, and I still struggle today uh, to sort of let go of the reins and let other people take control. But one of the, the success disasters you have is, is that um, one model doesn't uh, take you through. And uh, we've also struggled as a company moving from generalists to specialists. Um, so when you're small, you know, uh, generally it's developers do everything. Um, they'll speak at a conference, they'll uh, write code, do documentation, take the phone calls, um, you know, talk with the accountants. Um, and so over time though, you bring in, in specializations. In an Alassian, just in development, we have front-end, back-end, team leads, architects, uh, documentation and tech writing, performance engineering and QA, um, all of which used to get done by, by one person uh, in the past. It's also tough to bring in management. Um, again, people think, well, you know, uh, and we still struggle today, that all the developers say, well, my manager has to be a better developer than me and also be an awesome people person. <laughs> and we really struggled because we, we spent about a year looking for this person and found that if, they, if that person existed, they probably were already working for us. Um, and, uh, and so eventually we had to teach people that, well, actually, a management is a specialty that's, that's different to being, being a developer. Um, and we introduced support. Um, we felt developers could do awesome support and uh, they generally suck at it, um, just so you know. Um, so we brought in a, a support team. So moving from generals to specialists was a, was a very painful process for us. Um, but the most painful process is letting, letting people go. And, uh, and I know that's as, as running a business. Uh, we've let probably 30 people go over the history of the company, maybe 40. Um, and uh, it's the hardest thing you have to do. Um, and there's no university course that teaches you how to let someone go in a, in a nice manner. Um, you just have to do it. And the, thing I've, the things I've learned about letting people go is, um, firstly, you have to trust your gut because no one will tell you, especially at a senior management level, no one will say, hey, this guy's doing a bad job, you know, you should kick him out, right? Like everyone says, yeah, he's really good, you know, everyone's really positive. Um, and, and so no one's going to back you up. Um, in fact, at about a year, and a half ago, I had to let go one of my uh, senior management team. And uh, he, uh, he, awesome guy, he actually coached the Australian uh, deaf girls soccer team. Um, he has three kids, he's the sole breadwinner of a family, and uh, he just wasn't doing the, the job we needed him to do. And I remember I sat there and I cried, and then he cried, and, and we cried together, and, uh, um, and uh, I had to let him go, though. And the whole team was up in arms after that. They're like, why do you let this guy go? Like, a really nice guy, he's doing a great job, why do you let him go? And I had to defend myself, because no one, no one backs you up. Um, I had to defend myself, and it turns out we hired someone else, um, actually only a month or two later. And uh, that new person, as soon as that new person came in, within two or three weeks, everyone's like, why didn't you let that guy go earlier? Like, this new guy's awesome. Like, what took you so long? And, uh, and you have to learn to listen to your gut. Um, and most of the people who we've let go have gone on to do bigger and better, better things uh, at, at other companies. Um, we've got people that grew the company from 
20 people to 200, but really struggled sort of from 200 up. And they've gone back and done that 20 to 200 person cycle again and again. Um, secondly, I, second to last, I want to uh, talk about building somewhere where you want to work. If I'm going to be uh, at this company, I want to build the company that lasts for 50 years, hopefully I'll be involved with it some way or another for most of those 50 years. Um, and, uh, and you have to enjoy going to work every day. Um, there's a company that uh, I've got friends who work at a hot startup at the moment. They do a lot of stuff around data analytics. Um, they've raised $11 million. They've got top VCs, a great board. Um, and people are leaving in droves because the company didn't spend any time building its culture. Um, everything going for it, stock options that are going great, and people are moving to other companies because the, the basically from the top down, um, they haven't set the right culture. Um, when we rejected someone, I really loved this rejection, the uh, reply we got um, from the rejection notice that we sent them. Um, so obviously culture starts with hiring, um, and our, our initial hire, we um, hired a British backpacker. Um, the interview took place in the pub. Um, he, uh, he lived at the local backpackers uh, for six months before moving in and sleeping on my floor. Um, and we've evolved our practices a little since then. Um, we now do a process called top grading. Um, does anyone here, does any company here do top grading? If, uh, for the videos, we have one person. Um, two people. So we have uh, top grading is a process where instead of giving people hypothetical questions, um, or what would you do in this situation, or answer, or answer sort of problems in an interview, you say, okay, well, there's two things you want to know about a person is, will they survive, like, in any, like, are they going to do a good job? As in, are they passionate, smart? Are they people that sort of find their feet no matter where, uh, where you put them, because at a growing company, things are going to change and evolve. So you want to find someone that's going to that's do that. And secondly, are they passionate about the job you're about to put them in? Um, and so the top grading process just goes through their entire work history and says, okay, well, what did you do in each job? What were your good points, bad points? Why did you leave? Um, you know, who was your boss? What were their good points, bad points? And you just go through their entire work history. It takes about three hours, so it's a pretty in, in, uh, involved process. But at the end of it, you can very clearly answer the questions of, have they always done a good job and where to where they've landed and are they interested in this job? Um, and we've done a few times where we thought there were two or three candidates and we thought this is the right guy for the job and we changed our mind um, uh, after that process. Um, I mentioned this morning about values. Um, you need to have company values. Um, you don't need to articulate them when you're small because they're actually there every day. It's the founders there living the values. It's only when you get to a stage where the founders aren't involved in hiring uh, anymore, or they've delegated that down, and so there's people that, you know, the, the, the culture, you need to basically codify it. You can't sort of have a culture that you want, uh, you know, you basically have to say, here's the culture we've got, but we want to keep it, we want to make it stronger. Um, so we went through, Jim Collins has a process called the, the Mars Group, which you can look up, um, about how to, uh, how to develop them, and uh, we ended up with our company values, um, open company, no bullshit, uh, build with heart and balance, don't fuck the customer, play as a team, and be the change you seek. Um, and uh, we have specific meanings around them, and what they are is they just mean that we attract more people like us to our company, right? And so that means we're just going to become more of what we are, which is, which is really strong. Um, and lastly, and I'm out of time, but hopefully I can get through this, um, is I passionately believe about giving experiences, um, mainly to employees, but also uh, to customers. Um, if, if the employee does a good job, don't give them a cash bonus, please. Like, no one remembers a cash bonus or what they spent it on. Um, people remember experiences that you give them. So uh, we, uh, 
years ago for our first company offsite, uh, at the end of financial year, we wanted to reward our employees for what they'd done. Um, and so we organized a chase around the city. And um, uh, I'll put this on, it's got some uh, sound. But our employees came into work one morning um, and uh, the, you know, the founders weren't there, we were out planning, and they had a projector that was set up, and at the appointed time, the projector automatically started playing this movie. So uh, this movie basically goes through and uh, and shows um, goes through Sydney and shows you know basically that you've got to solve uh, these terrorists are going to attack Sydney and you need to go out and solve it and eventually at the end of the video it just has one word that says QWERTY um, you know with a flashing cursor and uh, everyone's like oh, what what does that mean because that was the only instruction people got um, and some bright smart spark eventually worked out and he went to his keyboard and he lifted it up and turned it over and yep sure enough underneath that was instructions and so every person's keyboard basically sent them to a certain direction around the office where they had a little stash and they became a team and from the office in the team they then went around the city and had all these uh, these clues that they had to sort um, and the clues were things like uh, um, you had to go to the state library and follow you know the marble hand on the floor to the bookshelf and find the fourth book from the left hand side and get the 50th word from the 32nd page and then eventually that would give you to a code you know those lockers when you get to a swimming pool and you, you put the, that would give you the locker number and a code and inside that was the next clue uh, to take you around the city so it took us a, a few weeks to get this uh, going but if you don't want to go to sort of all that type of effort um, the biggest tip we had uh, on the day was we told everyone how to bring a digital camera and we said, while you're going around doing this chase in the city, um, you have to achieve these certain things and we'll give you one point for every photo you get. Um, and so you had to share food with a stranger. Um, you had to uh, get a photo with a policeman. Um, and you can see that someone's done a great job of combining those first two uh, by sharing food with a policeman. Um, you know, hold up the opera house and get a photo of that. Um, a photo in the driver's seat of a cab in, in Australia, we, that's the driver's side. Um, um, go, go get a photo out of the 10th floor of a building. Didn't manage build, which building, but people just walked up to 10th floor, walked straight through, out a window, took a photo. Um, <laughs> hug a tree. Um, in Australia, we got a lot of tourists, so uh, you get one point for every Japanese tourist you could get in one photo. <laughs> so we, I, think the, I think we got 25 or 30 points in that one photo. Um, and as we grew, as we grew, we've done other things. We did a we did a circus uh, a circus day last year where we took out uh, I guess about 120 people uh, in Sydney, and we all got to uh, ride uh, tricycle uh, ride uh, unicycles and learn how to juggle and so forth. So I think for a company, don't give people cash. Use that cash and give people experiences because people will remember that. People will tell their friends, and that's how you build a, a strong company culture. So uh, I'll put these slides up on SlideShare if anyone wants them. And uh, I'm around at the rest of the conference if anyone uh, wants to talk. Thanks a lot.